preaching to people than to a camera. So I'm very thankful to be back here with you all today. Uh, just a reminder that tonight at 6.30 we'll continue our uh, Advent study. Uh, so if you were interested in that, it doesn't matter. If you missed the first one, you can still come out tonight. And uh, I think we still had a few books left uh, so if you're interested in that, uh, we'll be looking at chapter one a little bit tonight. Uh, if, you, if you need a book, just let us know, and we will make sure that happens. Luke chapter two, we're going to be talking this morning about, um, I think one of my favorite passages when we consider the birth of Christ. We're going to talk about uh, the hope and expectation that we see, as Mandy read earlier from, um, uh, as we lit the, the Advent candles, uh, that one of them represents hope and expectation. And that is something that should be fundamental to, fundamental to the life of every believer, hope and expectation. If we don't have those things, then we have nothing. If we don't have hope, if we don't have expectation, then we have nothing. So we're going to talk about that this morning, kind of break down what that means and help us to understand from God's Word what He desires from His people in hope and expectation. Luke chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 22. I'm sorry, we'll go back to verse 21. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21, it says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves for two or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for the revelation a lightful revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own too. So, and looking at this passage, the first thing that we need to understand is that we don't necessarily see the words hope and expectation outlined in this passage, but we see the biblical principle of hope and expectation in the, uh, the manifestation of what was in the heart of Simeon, the ways that he acted, the ways that he handled himself in life, the things that he looked forward to. We see the biblical principles of hope and expectation. In verse 25, again, Luke 2, 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, 
and the Holy Spirit was on him. The con- he was waiting. He spent his life waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, if you study the word consolation, it is talking about comfort or the healing, the encouragement of God that would come to his people and be at work in their life. This was what he was waiting for. He spent his life waiting for this consolation or comfort that was to come. You see, we see in Simeon and any of the devout Jews uh, waiting in hope and expectancy for God's promised comfort. We see this in the life of those who are actually serious about God. That's the first thing that we need to understand about this. As we talk about this, any time that we say that Simeon or the Jews were waiting for God, we're talking about those who were actually devout in their pursuit of God. We're not talking about the general population because there are many people who, uh, even today we see it, there are many people who claim to be Christians, there are many people that, that say the right things about Christ, but in reality they're not actually waiting with expectancy. You will find no concrete hope in them, you will find no foundation of hope in them, and you will find no expectation in their heart. And we'll talk about that a little more as we go, but just so you understand, that anytime we say the Jews or Simeon were waiting on God, we're talking about those who actually desired to see God work. Now, we see this. There are many people throughout the Word of God uh, culminating in this moment in, in, in Simeon, but the many people who, throughout the Word of God that were looking for what God was doing. You see, there are many people, we see this even back to uh, uh, Abraham. We've talked many times in Hebrews chapter 11. It talks about how Abraham was called to leave the land of his fathers. And he left that land. He lived as a stranger in the land. He lived in tents as a stranger in the land. It says that he was able to do this because he was looking for a city with foundations whose architect is God. You see, in that moment, all the back, all that way back in, in history, even in Abraham, we see that he was looking for something off in the future that God was going to do. He knew that there was something. He didn't know where he was going when he was called to leave the land of his fathers, everything that he had ever known. You can imagine in that time how people, how seriously people took their lineage and their family and the place that they grew up. They were dedicated to those, those places. He was called to leave that place, and he was able to do it because he had a heavenly vision, because God spoke, and he had hope and expectation that God would actually lead him, that he would actually follow through with that which he had promised to Abraham. So that's the point, is we see all through the word of God that people were able to do things beyond what they could see with their own eyes because they had a spiritual vision to see something that God was doing beyond this world. That is exactly what Abraham was looking for, a city with foundations whose architect is God. He didn't know exactly what that would look like, but he knew that there was something that God was building that's foundations would transcend this world, and in that he could find a solid foundation for life and godliness that he couldn't find anywhere in this life. There was nowhere else that he could find that. That was, is what he was looking for. This is what we see in the life of those who were dedicated to the pursuit of God. We see in the life of Simeon as somebody who sees beyond this life at face value and has a heavenly vision of the spiritual realm and all that God wants to do in humanity. And they wait in hope and expectation for God to fulfill that. Now, uh, what are we talking about when we talk about biblical hope and expectation the word that we see commonly for, for hope in the Bible is a Greek word, elpis, 
It is, means favorable and confident assurance or expectation. Favorable and confident assurance or expectation. Colossians 1.27, Paul was talking of the mystery that was hidden for years and now is revealed among the Lord's people. In one twenty-seven, he says, To them, or the Lord's people at this time, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is what we're talking about when we talk about hope. Hope is not just wishful thinking. Hope is not just me hoping, just sitting around wishing that some sort of good or positive outcome would come my way. It is something that is concrete. It is confident assurance in God. It is confident assurance that what he speaks will be. It is confident assurance that if he tells me, you go, then he is leading me to some destination and he will help me to get from point A to point B, even if I can't see along the way. It's not wishful thinking. This isn't what we're talking about. Most people say, well, I hope this or I hope that. That's not what we're talking about. My hope is rooted and established in the solid foundation of God and it is unshakable because he is the source of my hope. He is the one who fulfills our hope. Our hope is established in Him, and He meets the need every time. This is what we're talking about when we talk about hope. This is why I say that hope should be established in every Christian heart. There is no way that we can possibly function as the people of God if we don't have confident assurance that when He speaks, He will fulfill all that He has said. That when He has promised something, that He will fulfill it. There is no way to be a Christian to actually follow him, to know him in depth, if we don't have confident assurance in our heart. Next thing that we see is understanding what the Bible is talking about when it talks about expectation. The Greek word for expectation, let me say this slowly so don't mess it up, is apokaradakia means to look, to watch, strained expectancy or eager longing. This is what we're talking about when we talk about expectancy. You see, when we talk about expectancy, we're not talking about... Sometimes we have expectations of other people. Right? We have things that we expect of our spouse, our children. We have things that we expect from, whether if you're a business owner, you have things that you expect from employees, whatever. We have expectations that we place on other people. A lot of times, expectations that are unreasonable. But we still have expectations of other people. Sometimes we have expectations of God. Sometimes we have expectations of God that are unreasonable. All of those things are not what we are talking about. When we talk about expectation, the biblical concept of expectancy, we are talking about me expecting that God is going to move. Simply that He will be what He is, that He is good towards me, and I can be straining in my observance of what He is doing in the earth, straining to see what He is wanting to do in the earth. We see this in uh, uh, 1 Peter, I think it's chapter 2 or 3, I can't remember, but uh, uh, it talks about how the, uh, uh, the prophets 
longed to and searched intently to understand the things that they were speaking. Under the old covenant, they would speak as God moved them, and they searched and studied to understand what they were actually saying because God was speaking forth the spiritual truth through them that was for us. And the passage goes on and on, and it says at the end, it says, even the angels long to look into these things. It's talking about the prophets and the angels longing to see that which is happening in you and I today. You see, they were living with expectancy. They didn't place their own human expectations on God, but they lived with expectancy that God spoke, that he was doing something, and there will be a day that he fulfills that. So when we talk about hope, we are talking about confident assurance in who God is, his goodness directed towards humanity, all that he is. Confidence, confident assurance in that, and then expectancy, longing to see what he is doing, expecting that he is actually going to move, expecting that he is actually going to work in humanity, expecting that he's actually going to work in me. That leads us to have to align ourselves with what he is doing. You see, there's a difference between the two. As I said, there's a difference between expectancy and placing my own human expectations on God. When I place my own human expectations on God, then I am desiring to make him fit the mold of my desires. I have this prescribed idea of what God should be doing in my life and how everything should look. And I expect him, then you come here and you make this happen. You see, that's not how it works. What we are talking about is expectancy that I am able to set myself at the cross of Christ where he has promised that he would work. And I lay myself there simply with the expectancy that he will do within me whatever he would. I have expectancy that he is going to move in me. Not that I'm going to tell him what to do in my life. You see, that is where we place unrealistic expectations on God. And we will spiritually fail every time when we are in that place. Every time you will find yourself in a state of misery because God is not living up to what you desire, what you want him to do. But when I live with expectancy that God is going to move in the earth, He's going to move in me, and I lay myself before him humbly that you would do whatever you would within me. He will meet that. He will fulfill that desire every time. You see, but it comes when I have expectancy that he will move rather than placing my human expectations on him. We have to have hope and expectancy as believers. Now, why were they so eagerly waiting then for the consolation or comfort of Israel? Again, Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. You see, this was significant 
heavenly vision that they waited for with such anticipation promised comfort. They were waiting for comfort or consolation, but from what? You see, for us to understand the concept of hope and expectancy, we have to understand from this passage what Simeon was looking at, his life, what he had come from that would lead him to the place of having such confident assurance in God and such expectancy that God was going to do something in the earth. You see that at this moment there was unrest in the human heart. We see this the system under which they functioned, the old covenant, simply... uh, made the true worshiper painfully aware of their sin by the need for continual ritual that would sanctify or set them apart outwardly. Every time that they went to the temple to sacrifice, it was speaking to them again the truth that you can never overcome your sin. The sacrifice that you're bringing here and laying on the altar, you're going to have to bring another one. Eventually you're going to do something, you're going to have to bring another sacrifice. And another one, the next person after you is going to bring another sacrifice. Every time they laid the sacrifice down, it was assurance that it wasn't enough. We see this in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the, where the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the golden jar of uh, manna, Aaron's staff, that had been budded in the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail. Now, in verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the the inner room, and that only once a year, never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. You understand what a weight this would have been in their life as the priests would go into... Let me explain the temple, the way it functioned. They would go into the gate and there was the altar where they would offer the sacrifice and then there was a basin to wash themselves. And the priests then would go into the first room, the holy place, where they had the, the, the lampstand and the table of bread and then they had the altar of incense that was directly before the curtain that separated off the most holy place where God dwelt. Now imagine this, all of the times they're going into this temple to do this work, and they're seeing this curtain, and God's behind that curtain. His presence is in this place, but I can't go there. I can do all of these things, I can bring these sacrifices and do the ministry of the temple, but one time a year, one person could go in there to offer the sacrifice for the people. All this time, they were standing, literally a a curtain separating themselves from the literal presence of God, and they couldn't go in that place. And all of the things that they were doing couldn't cleanse their conscience. 
It was simply an outward cleansing to make them acceptable enough that they could go in the first room where God wasn't so that they could do the ministry of the temple. This was what they were functioning under. You see, they were looking forward to something better than this. They knew in all of this, it says right here, it says that the Holy Spirit was showing by this, the way, the, the, the way into the most holy place where God dwelled had not yet been disclosed as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. All that they were doing day after day was external regulations that they had to live up to in every moment. A list of rules that they had to live up to so that they could be outwardly clean to enter into the place before God's presence. Now, they waited in spite of this for with such hope and expectations because they had spiritual vision to see that God had something greater for humanity. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11, says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonial unclean, sanctified them, them so that they are outwardly clean. In verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. You see the comfort that God was offering comfort that they hoped for, the comfort that they had confident assurance of, the comfort that they were straining to see was peace, was peace that they would overcome this this day where they lived and where they could offer this sacrifice over and over and go into this room and never actually be able to walk into the presence of God, but they would minister in this room outside. They were looking for the place of peace, that they wouldn't have to just be outwardly clean in their body anymore, but their hearts could be cleansed, that their conscience could be clean, and that they would find fellowship and peace with God. That is what they hoped for. That is what they were confidently sure that God was going to do. And that is what they waited, straining and striving to see that day. The comfort that that God was offering was relief also from the the tyranny of our sinful heart. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is more deceitful than anything else and is desperately sick. We've said over and over that there are many people in this world, absolutely people in the secular world, but even people in the church that believe today that the human heart in itself is generally good. It is not. You cannot find that in the Bible anywhere. The human heart in itself is not generally good. It is sinful. And evil. That is why we need a Savior. That's the whole point of it. If it wasn't generally evil in itself, there would be no need for a cleansing of our conscience before God. 
So Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 11. Day after day, the priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That was the system they functioned under. But when the priest had offered for all, but when this priest, meaning Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. You just understand how significant that is. The first thing that they were in hope for was that they would have peace. That their conscience would be cleansed, but then that God promised that not, not only will you have these, these regulations that are written on stone tablets or on paper anymore, but the very foundation of your being in your heart, I will establish my principles and they will be the essence of who you are. That it's no longer a list of things that I have to live up to, but God working and dwelling in my very being. Changing me from the inside out. That my outward body wouldn't have to be cleansed anymore because the foundation of who I am is different. The foundation of who I am is reflecting who He is. It's not that my body is reflecting living up to all these lists of rules anymore, but my heart wants to live up to the principles of God because they are the foundation of who I am now. You see, that is the difference between the the ways that many Christians look at things. There are so many people as Christians that think about things in terms of what do I have to do to be a Christian or can I do this or can I do this and still be saved. That is the total wrong way to think about all of this. The point of this is that the very principles of God would not be things that I look to as a list of, if I do all these things, then I can be a Christian. No, the principles of God now are meant to be written on my heart. That my heart would not be the human sinful heart anymore, but the foundation of my being would be the very principles of God. And the question wouldn't anymore be, what can I get away with as a Christian But how do I continue to have him establish himself as the essence of my being? What can I do to have more? What can I do to have myself reflect in greater and greater measure the glory of who God is? It's drastically different than the attitude we find so many times today. If your question as a Christian is, do I, have, do I have to do this or can I do this and still be a Christian? I think you have deeper things that you need to look at. Try to understand. Do I understand that what God wants to do in me is to change the foundation of who I am? That his very laws would be written in me. This was the hope that they had. They were confident in their assurance that God would work and establish himself in their heart. And they would no longer have to be a slave to their sinful desires.
See, God in his goodness and mercy has promised comfort and help to every one of us. His goodness and mercy, he has offered comfort and help to those who first recognize that they are a slave. That I recognize that without God, without him writing his laws in my very heart, without him cleansing my conscience to make peace between myself and God, that I am a slave. A slave to sin. I'm a slave to my own heart, which is deceitful. And evil. Now, let me say one side note here. There are people that, that will argue that and they'll point to good things that humanity does. They're, they're, that's not the point. People can do good moral things and the foundation of their heart can still be evil. People who are atheists can do good moral things. That doesn't mean anything. You see, the point of all of this is, think about it this way. If we were created by God, if we were created by him for his purposes in the earth, if we were created for, by God to worship him and to love him, the highest and greatest moral thing that you and I can do is to sacrifice ourselves for God is to offer him my affection and my love and my concern. That is the highest moral thing that you and I can do. Now, people who don't know God can do things that are morally good, that that fit into that category, but at the foundation of their being, they are missing still the greatest level, the highest level, of what we were created for. The sinfulness of the human heart is not overcome by doing good moral things. I can't do enough good things to pay for the debt of my sin. We can't. This is what we miss in all of this. It doesn't matter if somebody who doesn't know God can do good moral things. That doesn't make their heart essentially good. This is why every man, every woman, every child is fully in need of God and his mercy and his cleansing in my heart. God in his goodness has met the need of mankind. He has looked on us in our helplessness and he has met the need. Now, what is the point of this today? Simeon and those who were devout in their pursuit of God at the time, they lived for thousands of years in a system that could never bring them peace. Over and over they would do the same things that could just cleanse them outwardly, but it could never fix the mess in their heart. 
But you see, the point is, in the moment where Christ hung on the cross and he died, what happened? The curtain in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. And what that means is no longer am I relegated to this system where we offer these physical sacrifices over and over. They cannot cleanse me. No longer do the priests just have to stay in this first room and they can't actually be in the presence of God. But it says that now through Christ we can boldly and confidently approach the throne of grace. What that means is the curtain was torn that separated the presence of God from the rest of the temple. And that means the Bible says that our body is the temple of God, that He dwells in me now. I don't have to go to one physical place on a map. I don't have to cleanse my body on the outside to go into this this one room and then one time a year we can go into the presence of God. But every moment of every day, He can dwell in me and establish Himself in my heart. He writes his very principles, his life-giving principles, his freedom-giving principles. He writes them on my heart. Become the foundation of who I am. This is why they had hope. They didn't have wishful thinking that God would fulfill this. They had confident assurance and expectancy that God was going to bring peace. Now, maybe you have no hope today. Maybe, maybe your Christian hope is simply a matter of wishful thinking. I, well, I hope things work out. I hope that eventually God works. God desires that you and I would have confidence in Him. That we would have assurance that He will work. Not that I would place my expectations on Him because my hope will be disappointed every time when I place my expectations on God. God knows better than you what you need in your heart. He knows, the Bible says, as we talked about Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It goes on then to say, I, the Lord, am the one who searches the heart. Your heart is more deceitful if you don't know Christ, if you are not walking in the Spirit, if He has not established Himself and His principles in your heart. Your heart is more deceitful than you even know. But the Lord searches the heart. He has searched the heart of humanity and He has given us the remedy for what ails the heart of man. The very battlefields of man. The, the battlefields of man are not off in some distant country somewhere or fought with guns. The battlefield of man starts in the sinful heart. It's everything that we see around us. Every sinful thing that we see around us begins in the heart of man. That is exactly where God seeks to establish himself. That he would rid the human heart of all sinfulness and establish himself, bringing peace and comfort, and freedom in that place. Do you have confident assurance today that God is able? Do you have confident assurance today that God is able to heal your heart? Do you have confidence assurance, confident assurance today that if you place yourself in Him, if you walk in Him, that He will fulfill His promises to you. 
I'm not talking about promises of all the things that we want, of wealth and all these different things, that everything's going to be good now, that we're not going to experience any persecution or difficult times. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about freedom in the human heart, freedom from sin. Freedom from what the Bible says is deceitful and wicked above all things. Peace and freedom and clear conscience in that place that your being would be established in him. The praise team can come up as we close. That he would establish himself in your heart. And that my desires would now reflect his. My intentions would reflect his. My purposes, my thoughts, my conversations with others, they would reflect the very desires and purposes of who God is. God, we thank you today for the opportunity again to look into your word. Father, as we move into these moments of considering the advent of your Son and all that that means for us, we pray that you would establish in us a confident assurance in who you are. Father, that we would wait for you with expectancy. Help us to see when we try to place our own expectations on you. Father, help my expectancy to line up with your desires in humanity. And in that, Father, that I would always be longing to see, straining to see what you are doing in me and in those around me. Father, help us to be people who are not simply tossed back and forth on the the waves of the sea as we simply have wishful thinking. But help us to plant ourselves on the solid foundation established by your Son. And as Abraham, as we looked into what your word says about Abraham, that he was looking for a city with foundations, whose architect is God, that as we travel through this world, that we would always have a heavenly vision. Give us confidence in that vision, assurance in that vision. Father, help us to never turn from that vision. Thank you for your mercy and your goodness that has promised peace and hope to humanity. It is in your name we pray, amen.